big announcement to make this morning. Today will be my last sermon here at All Saints. That is, at All Saints in this nave. I got you. (laughs) That's right. Lord willing, next week will be our last Sunday to worship in this space. And so I have asked the one who has preached the most sermons from this pulpit, Father Chuck Filiatro, to give the final homily. It will be fitting for a service where we will celebrate all that God has done for us in this sacred space over the last almost 20 years, if you can believe it. It It's February of 2004. That's next Sunday, which means, cross your fingers, that the Sunday after that, November 19th, will be our first Sunday in the new nave. Finally, right? Finally here. So yes, today is my last sermon in this room, and wouldn't you know, it's another sermon on stewardship. (laughs) Bummer, right? I mean, why could it be on something a bit more flashy and exciting? Like our gospel reading today, when Jesus blasts those Pharisees for their hypocrisy, that'd be fun to preach on. Or perhaps a sermon that sheds some light on one of the more confusing parables of Jesus. That's always fun. Or maybe something about the depth of God's love for us. How his goodness and mercy chase us down all the days of our lives. I mean, really, come on, anything but stewardship. I remember when I was preparing to be ordained to the priesthood a little over 10 years ago. I was on staff here at All Saints, and as a part of the preparation, Father Chuck had organized a sermon review committee to provide me with feedback whenever I preached. Well, one of the sermons I was evaluated on was the first sermon I had ever preached at All Saints during one of our annual stewardship series. And I had great aspirations for that sermon. With that sermon, I was hoping to put some pizzazz back into the topic of stewardship to convince those here at the time that stewardship doesn't taste as stale as it sounds. So I entitled my sermon, The Adventure of Stewardship. (laughs) And I'm not going to lie, I thought it was a pretty good sermon. I thought I had made my case, that is, until I met with my review committee. And it was Chris Pope, who I don't see today, the one who gave such a wonderful testimony on stewardship last week. I don't know if he remembers saying this, but he said, yeah, that whole notion of stewardship being an adventure, I didn't really buy into what you were saying. Stewardship, that's just not how you want to go out. I know how it sounds. It sounds like a campaign push. It feels like some college core class that you just have to take and get it over with, like an annual physical No matter how you dress it up, no one wants a physical, but you endure it all the same because that's what, that's just what you do, stewardship. But then you meet someone who lives their life like they're on another planet. Someone who exudes this unexplainable joy and peace and you don't understand it. I mean, you know the type, you know what I'm talking about. People who don't worry about the things that we worry about. They're overly eager to do the dishes, to give themselves away, to share their time, open up their house to anyone. Whatever it is, they're they're just not afraid. 
It's as if they have been so overtaken by some grand vision of life that they, that they can't help but to press toward it with all they have, to strain forward with every ounce of their being. And as they do so, you know, they just kind of ooze with joy. And surprise, surprise, these crazies will actually use the word stewardship to describe their radical behavior. I mean, they light up when the topic of stewardship comes up. To them, stewardship is not a bore. It, it really is an adventure. They really view themselves as stewards. Stewards of this world for another world that is coming. Did you hear that? Stewards of this world for another world that is coming. Let me explain what I mean by this by turning once again to the Apostle Paul and his letter to the Philippians. Over the last two weeks, as we've looked at this letter, two things have become quite evident. One, that Paul views his life as a stewardship. And two, that his life is filled with joy, even as he sits in prison, right? I did not realize this at the time, but the last two sermons on Philippians have followed that well-known formula for fostering joy in life. You know, the one that corresponds to the acronym JOY, J-O-Y. First, Jesus, J, and then others, O, and then yourself, Y. I'm mean, cheesy, yes, but there is some truth there. So recall that in Philippians 1, we read this amazing life-defining statement Paul makes when he says, to me, living is Christ. And that's foundational, the foundation of his stewardship, a vibrant life with Jesus, J. And then last week in Philippians 2, we were invited to respond to this incredible challenge Paul makes when he says this. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. In other words, joy is found when you, like Jesus, give yourself away for the good of others. Oh. And now today, no, we're not going to move on to the letter Y. Rather, we're going to be looking under the hood of the car, trying to catch a glimpse of what has so overtaken Paul that he can live this kind of life, that he can declare, to me, living is Christ, and then invite us along with him to give ourselves away. What is it that has so captured Paul's imagination. Well, this is where our reading today comes into play from Philippians 3, especially the last two verses, verses 13 and 14. This is where we get to look under the hood. Listen to what Paul says. This is the one thing I do, he says, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Oh, man, we've all heard our fair share of preachers get pretty animated over these verses, haven't we? I mean, run the race, fight the fight, keep pressing on toward the prize. Man, this passage has got the right stuff to inspire and motivate people to action. You know, kind of like a coach pumping up his disheartened team when they're down at halftime. Press on, come on, let's go. Of course, the problem is figuring out what the heck Paul is actually talking about here. I mean, what is the meaning of these words when he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ? 
I mean, that all sounds really nice, right? Lots of fluffy spiritual words here, but still, what does it all mean? Well, first, most scholars agree that the two phrases here, prize and heavenly call, are set in apposition to each other. That means there's like a grammatical equal sign between them. This is why some translations actually put it this way. The goal I pursue is the prize, namely, the heavenly call of God. Okay, that helps a little bit. But we're still left with the question, what is this prize, Paul, that you are pursuing, this this heavenly call of God? What is that? This is where most modern-day Christians take a wrong turn. And that's because when we read this passage, we bring with us certain preconceived notions about heaven that are actually foreign to the text. We assume that Paul's primary goal, his primary pursuit, is a final heavenly destination. That he wants to make sure that he goes to heaven when he dies. And so, we assume that this should be our ultimate pursuit as well. But this isn't at all what Paul is talking about. We know this for a number of reasons, but most importantly, because of what Paul explicitly says just a few verses later. It's not in our reading, but it's a little bit further in chapter 3, where later he mentions heaven once more. But it's not about us going up to heaven when we die, but rather it's about Jesus himself coming from heaven to earth in order to transform this world and our bodies within it, right? Listen to what he says in the last two verses of chapter 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and it is from there that we are expecting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will come and transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory. So the context makes it clear, going to heaven after you die isn't the goal Paul is referring to. He's referring to living in God's new world with our newly transformed bodies, which means that he's somehow pursuing this kind of reality right here and right now in the present, working to bring God's new world to life right here on earth. This is the heavenly call that has become for Paul his highest pursuit. Well, okay, let's tease this out a bit more by taking a trip back in time to the year 42 B.C. That's about 100 years before Paul arrives in Philippi. Julius Caesar had just been assassinated so, so that now there is chaos pulsing throughout the Roman Empire. A Roman civil war has, has erupted And Caesar's heirs, Mark, Anthony, and Octavian, were after Caesar's assassins and their army. And the conflict finally culminates in the battle of Philippi, right? Where the forces of uh, Anthony and Octavia win the decisive battle. Victory is finally theirs. So that now they find themselves with thousands of soldiers in northern Greece who have nothing to do. And the thought of them returning to the capital city of Rome, well, that feels like a dangerous idea. That's much too close to the reins of power. And so the two generals agree to give these soldiers much of the land of Philippi, making this Greek city now a Roman colony. 
Now, throughout the years, other Roman soldiers would also settle in Philippi so that by the time we get to Paul, the city is made up of a large number of, get this, Roman citizens living side by side with native Greeks. Of course, the Romans were very proud of being Roman. And so they would do their best to order the city's civic life according to the Roman way. Now, now listen, this is important for us to grasp if we were to understand what Paul is saying when he tells the Philippian church that our citizenship is in heaven. There's a comparison being made here. For being a Roman citizen in Philippi did mean that you were just waiting around for the day when you could finally go back to Rome, right, and settle down there. No. Instead, it meant that you were working to bring Roman culture to bear upon the city of Philippi. That was their home. In the same way, being a citizen of heaven didn't mean that the Philippians were to wait until they die so that they could finally go to heaven. No. It instead meant that they were to work to bring the culture of heaven to bear upon the city of Philippi. You see, this was the heavenly calling Paul was so single-mindedly pursuing here on earth. You've heard the old saying, he's so heavenly-minded that he's no earthly good. We've heard that. And the reason that this expression rings true in our day is because we tend to think of heaven and earth as having nothing to do with each other. That the more a person is consumed with one, the less he is consumed with the other. And so naturally, if that's the case, then pursuing a heavenly calling or being so heavenly-minded would mean that you're detached from the affairs of this world. And so, yes, you're no earthly good, right? This would have made no sense to the Apostle Paul. Because for him, to be heavenly-minded is to be consumed with earthly things. With bringing the rule of God to bear upon this present world. It's to be consumed with the stewardship of this world for another world that is coming. This, my friends, is why those crazies get so excited about the idea of stewardship. And this is what Paul is referring to when he says, I press toward the goal, that is, the heavenly calling of God, to bring the life of heaven to bear upon every earthly thing I touch. And so I ask you, think about all the earthly things you touch as you go about your day, as you go about your week, the work you put your hands to, the people you interact with, the things that you buy, the tasks that you perform. Notice that these things all have to do with your time and your talent and your treasure, and they're all quite earthly, aren't they? Think about these things and ask yourself, how consumed are you as a citizen of heaven with working to bring the life of heaven into all of these earthly realities that you touch every day? That's the question of stewardship. How do I flesh out the life of heaven into my earthly existence? How do I use my time, my occupation, my house, my finances, my relationships? How do I flesh all this stuff out for a heavenly world that's on its way? This, according to Paul, must be our first pursuit. The one thing we do 
forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, we must press on toward this goal, this prize, to be so heavenly-minded that we're so earthly good. See, I told you, stewardship is an adventure. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that we are made for this world and that your heart is to flood the realities of earth with the realities of heaven and that you have formed your church to be about that work, that that might be our first pursuit, to seek first the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. May we be consumed with that as we go about our lives and touch all of these earthly things. Fill us with your spirit. Give us that grand vision of life so that all of us might be crazy. In the name of the Father and of the Son, 